Hello and welcome to Learning to Fly, the Science for the Anthropocene podcast brought to you from the Lancaster Environment Centre of Lancaster University in the UK. My name is David Tyfield and I'm the Professor of Sustainable Transitions and Political Economy at LEC. And welcome to you for the ninth podcast in this series. Welcome back to those who've been listening so far and a special welcome to those who are joining us for the first time. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, a really important subject, which is birds and our relationship with them. And for this, we couldn't be in better company than a relatively new colleague of mine, Catherine Katie Oliver. Katie is a beyond human geographer and one of the relatively newly appointed lecturers in the sociology of climate change here at Lancaster. She's a researcher and expert on veganism, animal histories and urban studies, and her book, Veganism, Archives and Animals, is out now in hardback and ebook from Routledge. This brings together theoretical and empirical insights to offer a historical and contemporary analysis of veganism and what a multi-species future might look like. And she's conducted extremely interesting research on urban chickens and now on how avian life is dealing with climate change in Morecambe Bay, which is a site of singular importance for many bird species. So welcome, Katie. Thank you for having me. Yeah, pleasure. Delighted to be chatting with you. And, and again, congratulations on your post. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. You may or may not know, but we start these discussions with a, a standardised question. So let's leap straight into it. Um, is your science, which I assume is geography, fit for purpose in the 21st century? Well, it should be, shouldn't it, given that geography is this kind of interdisciplinary subject. It's got the physical sciences, the social sciences. Um, yeah, it should be. And in many ways, I guess it is. But in many other ways, it isn't. It's still kind of got deeply conservative roots in many factions. There are radical geographers, there are critical geographers, but there's also a failure to engage with that, uh, perhaps on a bigger scale, to engage with things like perhaps the work I'm doing, to engage with things like the extractive and colonial histories of geography. So both yes and no, but hopefully we're moving in the right direction. Well, let's let's start then uh, with perhaps a, a. I'd like to hear a bit of sort of personal introduction to your how you came to be doing what you're doing. I suppose so. You have this long-standing interest um, in the specific and important challenges of bird life uh, in the Anthropocene, especially chickens, though obviously extending beyond that. Tell tell us a little bit about uh, how you got into that. So the chickens came to me in, in a way. Um, the reason I started researching and working with chickens because me and my mum started keeping chickens. So we rescued six hens a few years ago, sadly no longer with us. But in the process of kind of living with these hens, I became totally fascinated with them. And before that, I was researching veganism and food systems and alternative food systems. Um, but I didn't eat the chickens or the eggs because I, I am vegan. They just live with us. And it was really fascinating to see these chickens who'd come from the industrial food system, kind of learn or relearn or learn for the first time how to be birds, how to perform natural behaviours. Uh, and that really set me on a path. Uh, after my PhD, I actually wanted to leave academia, but that didn't happen. I stayed and because I had the opportunity to research with chickens for longer. So it was really came from a personal place of I just 
I just love chickens. <laughs> They're such amazing birds. And we, I know we're going to talk about that today. Uh, and the more time I've kind of spent with them, that's that's branched out. Uh, and so when I moved to Lancaster University, I moved to Morecambe. It moved from just chickens, although I do still um, look at chickens, to be in other birds. And, and this place is so kind of filled with bird life, as you said. Fantastic. I mean, yeah, let's turn to, to chickens and birds then. And, and your, your general topic of more than human or beyond human geographies. Now, of course, birds and bird life are very much in the news, uh, in fact, in our hearts and minds at the moment, um, because of this rampant HPAI. So if I get the acronym right, um, highly pathogenic avian influenza, which is you know, rampant through Europe especially. So we're hearing about massive culls, hundreds of millions of birds being slaughtered, um, mass deaths being discovered of wild birds, uh, and even, you know, now spreading seemingly into various mammal species, presumably because they've been eating these dead uh, and uh, infected birds. So uh, stories of foxes, otters, seals, even bears... Not yet humans, though H5N1 has obviously killed humans in the past. So there is then also, you know, the looming danger of another pandemic, which, of course, everybody now is uh, very concerned about. On the other hand, though, keeping with the pandemic theme, um, there's also this relationship to bird life in terms of uh, through lockdown, uh, a surge in the uptake of suburban, urban bird pets, chicken pets, uh, often uh, in quotes retired, as it were. So you talk about chickens as a, um, a symbol of a human reconfigured biosphere. Fantastic phrase. Tell us a little bit more what that means. So not my phrase. Um, this is from a kind of ge geology paper in the Royal Society a few years ago. And they talked about chickens and the way that humans have bred chickens. So from quite a small bird who laid an egg once a month to the chickens that everyone will be familiar to with today, which are broiler chickens, which are huge birds. They've actually grown. I think it's they grow. Chickens grow twice as fast now in half the time they did. Uh, 50 years ago, which is confusing, but they grow bigger, much faster. And so in 2018, this, this group of geologists led by someone called Karis Bennett um, basically found the, put together the evidence that that's the broiler chicken species was now a new species that was totally humanly engineered. So it didn't actually, it wasn't actually the same species as like Gallus domesticus, which is the domestic chicken. So, so the chicken has totally transformed. Um, and this is something we've actually been warned about for a decade. So there was a book published in 1975 that said if we carry on uh, breeding chickens the way we're breeding chickens, they won't actually be chickens anymore and their eggs won't actually be eggs. And I slightly disagree with that because these are still chickens. They still have those same behaviours. They still have the same kind of value as beings, um, but they are very different birds. And so they don't live very long. Um, they don't have any kind of access to uh, the world, their natural habitats. They're, they're, they're just totally, yeah, human-created monsters, I guess some would argue. I wouldn't argue they're monsters. I think they're lovely. Um, so, yeah, but yeah, but at the same time, uh, as you said, during a pandemic, um, the, we saw this upkeep of chicken keeping, which is weird because we know that there's a risk, and it's a small risk of that crossing from chicken to human. But the problem is if it does cross... 
it'll be deadly. It'll be really deadly if it kind of uh, does mutate in that way. And so there has actually been one case in the UK last year, so not this outbreak, and man, he didn't die. But he was keeping, I think it was 120 ducks in his house and they kind of went in and out. And so avian influenza spreads through feces and saliva. So if people see a dead bird and they touch it, I guess they they could be at risk. So when I've been working with chickens, we have to take really lots of precautions to ensure we're not um, mixing chickens with wild birds and we're not basically licking chickens or anything weird like that. Um, so yeah, that's that's the risk. Uh, so so basically in this this argument that the, the chicken is really a symbol of the Anthropocene and for the Anthropocene of what has changed and what we've kind of become, I guess, in this era. In the humble chicken, right, um, we see actually then, you know, a number of crucial issues for this idea of a science for the Anthropocene. And uh, I hope we can get through most of these in, in the conversation we're now going to have. So to map some of this out for listeners, there's obviously the, the key issues of problems that we've already talked about, the bird flu, but also uh, some of the conditions that have created that. So uh, the factory farming, it's environmental and arguably primary ethical consequences, uh, but also then the use of chickens in the development of dietary science uh, as we think of it today. Yeah, so problems on the f- the f- uh, is the first thing. Then, then there's the chickens or birds as a key site of rethinking or redoing, doing things differently. So this is about human-bird uh, relations, whether it's urban chickens or what we'll get on to talking about in terms of uh, more than human cities, urban ecologies, and you know the, the project, which I want to hear more about uh, in, in, in Morecambe Bay that you're doing now. And, and then thirdly, but by no means least, there's the, the methodological innovation of uh, how do we actually do this research. Um, I've called it sort of geography research, but it, it's so, it extends so far beyond merely the disciplinary uh, focus that maybe we just call it more than human research and, 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 and drop the geography. Anyway, so we'll, we'll get round to some of that, I hope. But let's start, um, let's start in the darkness, uh, which is where we are, I suppose, which is the problems and the stakes. How did we get here? How did we get to the the, the, the danger of there being a, a massive outbreak of bird flu, which obviously is catastrophic for birds, but potentially also for us too? Can you give us a bit of a, pos- a potted history of the recent history of the chicken, at least? The recent history of the chicken. Um, so we have a very long history with chickens, uh, but over the last I guess 100, 150 years, that's really changed. Um, so I'm going to give you some not recent history, uh, but chickens weren't initially domesticated for food. A very recent paper has kind of argued that chickens were domesticated for um, sort of like as collector's items. And so about 150, about 1840, so just over 150 years ago, chickens came into the UK uh, in a way that they'd never come into the UK before. And this was pioneered by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, who Queen Victoria loved any kind of fancy fowl, but she did like chickens. And so I guess I guess it's quite a long recent history. Um, but chickens basically flooded the UK and these were put in aviaries, they were on display, they were like a middle and upper class obsession. And it was known as the hen fever, um, which lasted 10 years and was then overtaken by the Victorian lapdog. Um, 
And so at that point, people began crossbreeding chickens and they, they initially began crossbreeding them for, um, I mean, they'd crossbred them before, but they began crossbreeding them kind of in earnest to produce these fancy collector's items. But when the hen fell out of favour, um, this kind of changed to be an a project to produce more eggs, to produce a bird who can produce eggs and meat. But back then we didn't really eat, or humans didn't really eat a lot of chicken meat. It was more chicken eggs. And so really the intensity of the chicken changed in about 1948. So after the war, so chickens fell out of favour. They kind of came back in favour during the wars as like subsistence in cities in particular. And then in 1948, there was this thing in the US because of course it would be in the US, right? <laughs> Called the Chicken of Tomorrow contest. And this contest kind of ostensibly was to breed a new kind of chicken for the future. But what the, ch the contest was really doing was trying to make chicken meat appe appealing to people where chicken meat hadn't been appealing before. It was really about eggs. Uh, and so that saw a total switch in how people consume chicken. And it meant... Um, the, the, rather than the poultry industry being focused on egg production, it became focused on both egg production and meat production. So we saw a kind of split in the genome at the turn of the 20th century that allowed for these kind of obese birds to be bred. Uh, and then since 1948, that has just continued to accelerate. Um, so, so birds have kind of been more intensively farmed instead of, instead of being like, subs, uh, not subsistence, but I guess more... There was a shift from local farm production to these intense mega farms that we see today. And this isn't just in the US, this is in the UK. We've got many mega farms. Uh, and now we're seeing these kind of across the world in intensified. And we have, I think, we don't know how many chickens there are, but there's estimates as high as 33 billion at any time. And now we have to bear in mind that broiler chickens are slaughtered at six to eight weeks old. So that number is like total... That's churn all the time. So those 33 billion chickens, are, you know, it's incomprehensible really, but they, they're kind of turning over incredibly quickly, which is obviously damaging for the environment. It's damaging ethically. It's also damaging to our relationship with our food, our relationship with the environment. Um, yeah, so, so the chicken is really, I think what I find so interesting about the chicken is it can really teach us a lot about there's more to it, basically. People just think the chicken's a chicken, but actually it's been really integral to human development, human science, uh, environmental issues and all these kind of things as well. Yeah, mind-boggling, those figures, especially when you, as you say, you, you make them a flow rather than, or a stock rather than a flow. Is that right? Which way around? Yeah, so you talk, uh, I think, at one point in, in your work about, presumably this is, again, at any given moment in time, the biomass of chickens is three times that of all other birds. Um, yeah, I mean, th those numbers are just mind-boggling. Um, and how can that not sort of lead to massive consequences in terms of uh, an input on the environment? So what, what kinds of problems does this chicken mega system lead to in terms of environment, health, socioeconomic as well? Yeah, so we've obviously talked a bit about avian influenza and that is the really big health risk. So the confinement of chickens, because they're so close together, it spreads really quickly, which means it mutates really quickly, which means it might spread 
uh, beyond, well, it already has spread beyond chickens. It's, as you said, spread to foxes and otters. So that's the big kind of health one. And we've talked a lot about that already. But we also have from specifically, not from chickens, I should kind of emphasise, it's not the chickens doing this, but it's the way we enclose them and farm them has really uh, terrible environmental impact. So chicken waste has lots of ammonia in it. And then ammonia gets into the kind of groundwater, into the soil. So we have negative soil impacts. We have impacts on the nitrogen cycle, I believe. And then as we've seen in the news this week, we have uh, basically the poisoning of Britain's rivers. And I guess I specifically work in Britain. Um, But these aren't unique to Britain. Um, So we have this kind of the poisoning of rivers. Um, Yeah, so so the, the really, it's interesting because when we think about eating animals and climate change or environmental change, we often think uh, it's about methane, about let's not eat red meat because cows emit methane, which, as we all know, heats heats the planet. And so one of the environmental, in like scare quotes, uh, alternatives is to eat more chicken, but that which I guess isn't warming the planet but it is having environmental consequences and ones that are irreversible and ones that we're perhaps not fully considering when we think about um how how we're going to eat i guess for the anthropocene how we're going to eat for the future it's not as simple as just unfortunately or fortunately switching from red meat to white meat as i guess people call it um so yeah there's this kind of these environmental impacts that we're still thinking about. Um, And then on the kind of socioeconomic, there's this, I guess, this divorce from nature. So our food is enclosed, our food is over there. We don't know what the food system is for many of us. I guess those of us who research it or think about it do know what the food system is, but most people it's not visible. Uh, We kind of, yeah, we have that loss of social connection with other animals, whether that's chickens or wildlife. So mega farms also take up space in um, the countryside, for want of a better word, eliminate other species as there's a link between chickens and kind of wildlife impacts. Um, So we have this like divorce from from nature, I suppose, in society, divorce from what we're eating. Um, Yeah, the the quality of our food isn't very good. So um, yeah, soil quality in the UK is pretty terrible. So there's all these impacts that you can't really separate the environmental and the social. They're all kind of wrapped up and enclosed and put away over there where we can't see it or think about it. Uh, and then, of course, there is the ethical, which I guess should be um, fairly obvious. These su- chickens are suffering um, huge amounts. They have kind of no access to the outside. They have little access to light. They have their diets controlled. So they go through periods of starvation and overfeeding. Um, they only are allowed to sleep for four hours a day. They suffer a lot of behavioural problems because they're enclosed. So chickens don't generally fight if they've got enough space. But when they're in those enclosures, um, it leads to kind of pecking, feather pulling. Uh, and some of the chickens that I've seen who've come out of those systems are like totally bald. Uh, they've had all their feathers kind of plucked out. They're really unhealthy. They've got um, sort of all sorts of reproductive problems. And they are sort of, you know, psychologically very damaged as well. So it's kind of, yeah, it, it's it's horrible. <laughs> it's not great. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so w- one of the things that um, I was reading uh, in preparation for this chat was um, a discussion precisely about whether 
um, eating white meat, it, chicken is more sustainable than red meat. Um, and of course, as you said, you know, the issue there is usually that's talked about in terms of methane emissions from uh, ruminants like cattle. Um, cattle obviously also are, are much bigger, more impressive animals. Um, I think we accord them with a high level of sentience, whether or not that's fair or not. Uh, but once you're confronted by the numbers of these birds and then um, the number of birds that it takes to create the same amount of meat uh, as does a, a single cow, uh, and then the, the terrible conditions which specifically affects chickens uh, much more than, than red meat generally, uh, cows or pigs, um, it, it becomes... a, a a completely different equation. So, um, and I think that's probably there in the socioeconomic aspect as well, isn't it? I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I have the impression that the the, the working conditions uh, for those working with chickens is probably worse as well. The the worst, as it were. Is is that true? Yeah. So it is pretty terrible, and I think anyone working in the animal killing industry has it pretty bad. Um, but working in those enclosed systems has really negative impacts for uh, people working with them. So being in that much ammonia from the chickens, kind of urine and feces, has respiratory impacts for chicken workers. We also have very high label, uh, levels of migrant workers in the poultry sector. And in the US, there's been lots of kind of research on how badly they're treated. Um, there's lots of lots of research about the psychological impacts of animal slaughter. And obviously, that's not I mean, it seems obvious that's not work that makes people feel good. Uh, it's work that is very psychologically and physically um, kind of exhausting, the, the repetitive motions of slaughter, um, how, how you kill a chicken, how you pluck a chicken, if we've got any feathers left, how you um, catch chickens. Uh, yeah, so that there's, physical, there's physical and mental uh, impacts, health impacts of that. It's very badly paid work. Uh, and so when we were thinking about through the pandemic about key workers and who was a key worker and celebrating key workers, we were clapping, you know, nurses, we were clapping doctors, very right, you know, well, we should really pay them more. But, you know, there was no kind of respect or spotlight on slaughterhouse workers or poultry workers or animal killing workers, even though they're providing a function in society, that the majority of people, I don't, I don't want that to be a function of society, but the majority of people want that to be a function of society. Yet their treatment, it's this dirty work, it's hidden, people don't want to know about it, because they don't, I mean, you don't really want to know about it, do you? Because um, you'd have to sort of rethink what you do, what you consume. Let's turn to another aspect. I mean, we're sort of sitting on the problems. I mean, nice to move on from that a little bit, but um, we'll get there. I want to ask another really important question, though, which is that, again, another quotation which you, you draw on. I think this is from um, a scholar called Hannah Landecker. Uh, you talk about the way the singular role that chickens have played as a, a, a singular inward laboratory, the, the, the way in which the chicken has become a model organism for understanding our own nutrition and, of course, for developing that. Just tell us a little bit more about that. That that's obviously a very important part of the chicken too. Yeah. So as much as the kind of exploitation of the chicken is horrible, it's also fascinating how closely the chicken resembles the human. 
so nutritional science and agricultural science actually emerged kind of at the same time as each other at the turn of the 20th century. And at the, in the early 20th century, we actually knew more about chicken nutrition than any other animal. And the reason for this was sort of practical. You can get a chicken and take them into a lab. You can't really get a cow and take them into a lab in the same way. Uh, so the chicken became this kind of, someone calls it the premier model of science. You could, they're easily, easy to handle. They don't, I mean, they fight back a bit, but it doesn't really hurt, I guess. Uh, they can be easily controlled. We can, um, yeah, handle them quite easily. And so their, their nutrition, uh, the nutrition of the chicken became really fascinating and important, but also easy to study. And what what was also, what's also interesting about the chicken is that we don't, or particularly then we didn't eat the chicken necessarily, we eat the egg. And so the egg, um, the chicken and the egg have became this site where we could tweak or fix nutritional problems. And what I mean by that is when, um, so for example, vitamin D3 is a big one. We have lots of people who are deficient in vitamin D3 and we always have. Um, so chickens, you can add vitamin D3 to a chicken's diet and the chicken will eat the vitamin D3 and then spread it kind of through their tissue and into their eggs in a way that then makes it easier for humans to digest because it's pre-digested for us. And so the chicken becomes this space for like enhancing the human, for fixing human problems and just kind of this, this uh, I guess, flow that material can pass through and attach on and so it was really attached to kind of how we think about metabolism as instead of and this is how Hannah Landecker puts it as we stopped thinking about metabolism as like an input output system and instead started thinking as it uh, of what you eat becomes like signals and stores in the body whether human or animal and the chicken is the kind of perfect example of that they store this up they enhance the products through how through experimentation and in so doing can supposedly fix bigger problems so there's vitamin d3 and omega-3 is another big one that are still kind of fed to chicken diets to enhance their eggs and uh, flesh for us it, to eat. it almost makes the modern human sound a bit like um, a kind of ruminant um, where instead of uh, eating something that's gone through us uh, at, at a gut, at a, at a later stage in our digestive system, we first passed it through the chicken, um, and 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 it's done that job, you know, in the same way that uh, you know the, the the goo that a, a ruminant produces. Yeah, anyway, so we're uh, outsourcing our, yeah, exactly. our labour. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, uh, our, and our digestion. Yes. Um, okay, so let, let let's just turn to um, two more elements, I think, of, of this issue. Um, of, of the problems that we're talking about. And the first one is a term that you use, which I know is growing um, growing in currency in geography, critical geographies, uh, which resonates very strongly with the picture you've uh, painted for us for, for our use of the chickens, which is that this is a science for the Anthropocene podcast, but the the, the word that's used increasingly uh, in these more, more than human geographies is a, a different term, the plantationocene. I hope I've got that right. Um, what is the plantationocene and um, wh why the term? How does it illuminate uh, the situation regarding chickens in particular? Yes, the plantation is seen looks at Anthropocene issues through uh, kind of links with uh, race and with plantation cultures, with monocultures. 
um, with regimes of racialized violence, land appropriation and biodiversity loss, as Judith Carney has put it. Um, so there's these vast monocrops. Um, the organisms are sort of standardized. They're produced outside of ecology. So in something like the chicken mega farm, but they also employ um, kind of racialized labor as well in those systems. So as I mentioned that the um, chicken farm tries to standardize, standardize um, kind of chicken life, tries to grow it as big and as fast in um, like an enclosed vacuum system. So what goes in and out of the chicken farm or mega farm is very much controlled, but it also relies on racialized, often migrant labor, which is kind of heavily exploited. Um, so there's sort of various elements of control, various elements of violence and oppression in who's doing that work both human and non-human, and the kind of uh, output that they're looking for, which is this standardised product, which is a monocrop. Uh, and so this is often used, obviously, with, with plants, but uh, I've started to think about the chicken as, as being becoming a plant and Im imbued in these same sort of systems um, of how we move. The chicken isn't really seen as an animal anymore. They've become this plantation object. Um, so potentially it fits into these ideas of the plantation scene as well. Very interesting. Me, uh, the Marxian term that pops into my head in listening to all that, of course, is the metabolic rift. And um, the, the flip side of the metabolic rift uh, is uh, to the uh, plantation um, monoculture countryside, as you said, in quotes, uh, that being the rural, um, is the city. Um, and of course, more than human geographers are, uh, are also very interested in cities. So, um, you know, some of the uh, grandees of the discipline, for instance, have recently started talking about the way in which cities, uh, in quotes, uh, rely on organized forms of cruelty to non-humans to maintain their human momentum. Cities are hungry predators and other forms of life. Uh, cities have nearly always been built on the cries, screams and howls of dying animals. Strong stuff. Um, What's meant by that? I mean, in what way do cities consume animal lives? Apart, I mean, the obvious one for me is meat, mm -hmm. but um, it's not limited to that, presumably. No, so so there's kind of uh, a real turn in by the big the big name geographers to this, and there's a longer tradition in kind of animal studies, uh, which is interdisciplinary. Uh, well, studies discipline that looks at um, animals as, as the kind of subject. But yes, meat is a big one, how uh, cities are organised, uh, how cities consume food from, you know, production in the rural into the city, feed in the city. We also have a uh, kind of what's the word I'm looking for, displacement of animals through uh, whether house building, office building, regeneration. So animals can't roam as far as they potentially once could. Uh, they're displaced from habitats, things like bats, uh, or animals like bats particularly go through this and smaller animals that you can't see. So obviously we've lost most of our big predators in Britain already. And now we have um, there's like newts and toads and bats that are constantly in be being displaced in uh, regeneration and building projects. So that's another one. Uh, another one is sanitization. So it's not, well, like, it is about animals, but it's also about kind of plant life. So um, fertilizers, concrete, uh, what we use to build cities is uh, eradicates life. It, it tries to clean the city. It tries to make it empty of non-human life to center the human. Um, and there's a, I was listening to a really 
interesting podcast recently about birds in cities uh, and particularly in cities with tall skyscrapers and the kind of glass they put on. Birds don't know that that is glass. And so we see the death of so many birds who hit the glass and just fall to the ground because they don't. So it's this disruption. Uh, so it's a displacement, disruption, yeah, kind of sanitization of the city. Uh, but that isn't to say that there isn't life thriving in cities. Cities can also be opportunities for animals. Uh, I think in Canada we see, well, I, I guess bears and things encroaching further on the city because uh, food sources in further away from the city are less available. So things like feeding on waste, things like foxes in the UK are thriving in cities. Um, yeah, so, so the city kills animals in so many ways uh, just by its kind of very existence and also allows some life to, to thrive, um, but only kind of conditionally on that not being a nuisance, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, so I mean, I think you've already um, begun to open up what, what we're going to turn to now, which is let's dive directly into the new waters of a more than human uh, geography or social science. What does this term more than human mean? I mean um, why is it specifically chosen to, to capture that move? So it's kind of, I mean, there's all sorts of these terms. There's the post-human, the non-human and the more than human that are rooted in different traditions. The more than human specifically is looking at relationality, um, ways to flourish, collectivity, uh, belonging and disrupting the centrality of the human to our modes of investigation, whether that's kind of ontological or uh, yeah, empirical, whatever way we, we look at it, it's about disrupting the human centrality to things. And instead of looking at human and animal as a binary, looking at how we all kind of exist in this web of relations. And there's lots of this language around entanglement, relations, um, collectivity that almost presents it as... Um, kind of different kinds of dependencies rather than independencies. Um, and I guess, I guess I sort of sit uncomfortably with the term at times, which is why I often describe myself as a beyond human geographer, uh, because of the kind of hierarchy, perhaps, that more than human might impose. So the more than human is often used synonymously with animal, which is not what it, it means, really. It is about uh, technologies. It's about um, plants. It's about everything, effect, emotion. It's about all of these things that are more, more than human. But in creating that more than human, um, there's the argument that we also create a less than human and we create a less than human category within the human. So who gets to count as human? Um, so I prefer often to think of it as the beyond to sort of disrupt that um, hierarchy of what's more. If we've got a more than, we must have a less than. Um, and it's still sort of, yeah, the, the, I guess it's very difficult to totally disrupt the human in this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of this focus on relationality and moving away from the human at the centre of social and humanities research. Excellent. So can you give us some examples then? I mean, what, what do we specifically learn from assuming this beyond or more than human perspective that, that otherwise would be missed? Um, obviously, you've, you've outlined some of that. Uh, we've talked about it in terms of, you know, um, looking at the city through a more than human lens, just suddenly uh, you realise that, you know, you're surrounded by other forms of life, which otherwise you wouldn't be noticing. Um, I suppose even there, though, I, what I'm asking is, well, and then what? 
You know, once we've seen them, then what do we what do we understand? What do we uh, what do we um, conceptually or theoretically or or um, ethically see differently from from looking with these spectacles on? Yeah, I think you've got to the kind of crux of some of my issues with the more than human there is that often it does, uh, not always, this I don't want to sound like I'm just slating all more than human research, but there is a tendency to point out those entanglements, complexities, relationalities, as if pointing them out is the point. Um, and that's for me, that's not the point of doing research. The point of doing research, writing, engaging is to make a change, to make a difference in the world, to put that to work in, in a sense. Um, so what's what's the result of thinking about the more than human or the beyond human? Well, it's that we can challenge our perspectives. So if we think in the city, yes, there are these other forms of life in the city, but not stop there. What if those forms of life have as much right to be here as we do? What if actually we shouldn't be trying to chase foxes away? What if we shouldn't be allowed to disrupt bats from their habitat? What if we shouldn't be able to pluck what we think are weeds up from beyond the crack? What cracks of pavement? What if we aren't the kind of ultimate authority here? Because is that not what's got us into this mess? You know, is that not the Anthropocene argument um, by our supremacy? We've kind of done this. So so actually the more than human perspective can be put to work to challenge that. What if we don't always win? What if sometimes we have to lose? And what can we can we get to a point where we can not only see that but act on it? Um, and what might that look like if we think about um, kind of yeah, non-human or other than human life's right to be here um, and also our right to be part of it. So the city shouldn't just be an all-human space. It should be a space where we can live with other creatures, other kinds of life together, um, not just eliminate them, if that makes sense. Well, presumably, it's not just that it should be, it's that it is and has always has always been yeah. and always will be. And that, in fact, uh, even if one prioritises human flourishing, well, human flourishing is impossible in an all-human space. Is, is, absolutely, is, is that, absolutely. Is that yeah. part? I mean, yeah. it, it sort of, yeah, it makes me think of Sartre and hell is other people, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, is, is, um, is that a large part of the, of the argument? Yeah, so why are we trying to eliminate this other kind of life from our modes of uh, empirical research, from our modes of thinking? We've done that, you know, for centuries. It's time to do something different. So it's about, yeah, exactly that, um, acknowledging that it's never the human alone and it can't be. So why pretend it is? Let me see if I can actually put your question to you, right? So what what if we think this way? Um, um you set out very nicely there some sort of um, criticisms, which I suppose I've seen too uh, also in, in some of the readings that I've been doing, that uh, there's a tendency, it's, it's a worthwhile step in the development of a paradigm to first of all just present the empirics and say, uh, if we look this way, look, there's this, it's undeniable. But then there is always the question, and so what? And that leads to the what if we continue to think these ways or, or, or we explore these ways. And, I mean, you were saying very clearly there that, well, first of all, you said earlier that you were you know, not planning to be an academic uh, and yet it's, it's dragged you back in. Uh, bad luck. Um, but um, but that presumably a large part of that decision, uh, as you've said, is that um, uh, you do research because you actually want to make a difference. So there's... 
the need, surely, for uh, this perspective ultimately to contribute to a positive reconstructive vision rather than even a quiet sort of radical critique, right? The critique is fine, but if we stop there, then it's not complete. Let, let me just put, put another point to you, really, which is that playing devil's advocate a little bit, right? Okay. So I must admit that I find reading a lot of the urban ecology stuff, ultimately... It can, be, it can be passingly interesting, as you said, right? It's sort of, um, uh, oh, yes, yes, illuminating, and that feels quite nice. But often it's desperately depressing, mm -hmm. actually. And I come away from reading a lot of it really, really low. And I think part of that is built into the, the structure of the way it's done. Um, in that it's it's clearly driven by um, a com you know a completely unarguable uh, moral intuition, which is that once you start looking this way, you can see that we as a species have treated all other species and of course ourselves absolutely horrifically, um, and so the temptation is to say I will I'm going to side with the others, right? But I just feel that that is a strategy that cannot possibly work. Because all you've done there is taken the other side um, in where you stand, whereas de facto you are um, reaffirming the very dualism that is the source of all that violence. Yeah. It, and in a sense, the resulting situation is even worse than just being a, a completely blind to your anthropocentrism. Mm -hmm. Because the anthropocentrist, um, anthropocentric innocent, as it were, uh, at least has that opinion with a certain element of life affirmation. It may only be their life or human life that it's affirming, but it is fundamentally an optimistic perspective. Whereas to, to take the other side and to de facto reassert the nature-human distinction, but siding with the other, is immediately self-negating and probably driven by animus. Um, I mean, why else would you sign up for that? Um, so what that then ends up with is a research program or in, even worse, more dangerously, a politics, which is fundamentally negative mm -hmm. uh, and at worst, um, you know, a, a, a self-righteous hatred. Now, that to me feels like there's no possibility of us learning to live well together with other species uh, if, if that's the program. So we come back to this issue of, you know, a, a reconstructive vision. Now, I really like your work because you have some much better questions, right? So, for instance, you say um, that chickens teach us about who we are. Um, I think that's a wonderful statement. And in your book, you talk about exploring multi-species futures. Could you extemporize a bit more on that? What, what are these multi... What, where could we be going? What would a good living with other other species look like? Yeah, I think I think you raise some really interesting points. Um, and if we look at the, the kind of politics of that kind of thing, yeah, it gets pretty murky. Um, but that's not to say that the negative or or the the kind of nothingness isn't helpful. Um, but often in the ways it is, has been used 
it's not. And I think we do need a new way for negativity, perhaps, to, to explore how that might um, work or what that might mean. But f- for me, it's not never really been about that. It's never really been about uh, siding with exactly said siding with the other against the human and, and re kind of creating that uh, world of opposition. Because what's the what's the point? Where do we get? We don't get anywhere. Um, but I guess for some people that is the point. It's not about getting somewhere. It's about um, theorising, which, yeah, is, is a, a fine kind of uh, thing to pursue. But for me, and this is rooted in um, the people I've worked with as well, it's always been about thinking what that future would look like. Been thinking not about the animal as someone different from us, because they're, so, well, obviously they are, but only in the way that everyone's different, but about rethinking how we can live together. And so there's also a tendency in some of this research to look um, almost in silo to say we should leave the animals alone, we should leave nature alone, we should separate ourselves. And I just, I just hate that. Um, I just think we have, like for the, the chicken, for example, which lots of my work has been about chickens, um, we've had this 10,000-year history. And yes, what we've ended up with is awful. But the answer to that isn't to get rid of all the chickens and pretend they never existed and totally divorce ourselves from what we've done. It's about taking responsibility and rethinking what that might mean. So when we look at the chicken, it tells us about us as a society. It tells us about our history. And lots of that is pretty revealing and not in a nice way. But it also tells us about the the kind of really important relationships, cultural relationships, personal relationships, social, economic relationships that we can have with a species over 10,000 years that surely says to us, we're not here alone and we've never been here alone. And that relationship isn't one directional. Um, What's the chicken done to us? Um, how has the chicken shaped our lives? And I don't think we think about it that much in that way. Kind of the reverse, we think about it is this unidirectional relationship, which it just isn't and it couldn't be. Uh, and so I think what was really amazing about the people I met who, um, I suppose, rescued chickens after the industrial, uh, they saved, uh, rescued them from um, yeah farms, egg-laying hens, about 18 months old is it was a practice a practice of a vision for a different world that they didn't necessarily consciously know they were articulating but it was a world that was rooted with the chicken rooted with the soil rooted in place but also rooted with a bigger vision of what the future should look like that it should be slower that it should be more kind of connected that it should be more thought out and it should be more um empathetic, I suppose, for want of a better word. Um, so yeah, there's lots going on in this area and it's it's going kind of all over the place. Uh, but I think, yeah, that, that kind of spark of, I don't think we should lose the optimism or the reconstructive vision that is happening. And it is often, often happening in those smaller stories, the larger narrative. Yeah, terrible, I accept that. But actually there's resistance and there is these smaller places where things actually don't look so bad. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. (laughs) I mean, so again, to to sort of lean on this phrase, chickens teach us about who we are. But I almost think about looking at chickens as a mirror in some way uh, about about humanity. And there is a lot not to like in what we see in that mirror, you know, Dorian Gray like, right, stuck in the in the closet. Um, But a mirror, if it's a real mirror, really should show back uh, us in our totality. And that involves 
uh, also looking at um, good things about humanity, humanity, things that, um, you know, a, a certain element of uh, appreciative inquiry, right, uh, into what it is to be human and what we have become through a, a long and, you know, uh, turbulent history of our own evolution as a species in constitutive relation with other things. So what you were saying about the way in which we think about the fact that the agency of our evolution and our history is all ours. Um, but um, I mean, that's clearly been sort of upset by technology and you know, lots of stuff in science technology studies. It's there also in our relationship to the living world and no doubt specifically to domesticated species like the chicken. Um, I mean, the, the other thing in terms of the mirror is that the, the mirror presents us um, not just with a time slice. Um, and one of the things that you were already, you, you, you gravitated, uh, I think, um, sort of naturally towards it, is to say, well, this is a, a history of 10,000 years. You know, uh, yes, the recent history um, is, is, uh, is particularly bad, and it, but it's also particularly recent. Mm -hmm. And of course, that goes hand in hand with the, the whole process of modernity, with the ever, ever shortening time window that we can we can imagine into the past or into the future. You know, the, it gets down to the, you know, the, the duration of a TikTok video. Um, so uh, in, if that's the time slice, then all we're going to see is a very, very shallow humanity and uh, uh, probably a very um, uh, selfish one as well. Over the course of 10,000 years, though, um, it's a completely different story. Uh, and I think that that opens up the possibility of seeing the, the, uh, the good uh, in our relations. And, and you know, just the, the importance of this relational perspective that humans are human avian um, relational beings. They are human technological relational beings, etc., etc. Could we talk a little bit more about that longer term history then? So uh, in your work, you talk about how there's been discovery showing that, um, you know, we started to domesticate the chicken, uh, uh, discoveries in China uh, of chicken bones going right back to um, 10,000 years ago. There's this long co-evolution with the chicken, uh, the different meaning of the chicken that you're talking about. Originally, they were uh, collectors, birds, etc. But then the extraordinary cultural significance. You know, um, I don't think we can underestimate how uh, what an important element of that relationship is too, that in many, many cultures, uh, chickens are important. I mean, I think of just the, the very, it's there in the word of Gallic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, the, the French play rugby with the cockerel uh, on their chest. And, and of course, uh, equally, the, the meaning of eggs. These are very, very significant elements. They, they would leave big holes in who we are if we didn't have them. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think the history of the chicken is constantly changing. So we thought it was this 10,000-year history. More recently, uh, re kind of recent archaeological evidence suggests about 7,000 years, still kind of uh, from Southeast Asia. So the chicken we know today, Gallus domesticus, evolved from the red jungle fowl, or so Darwin thought. Um, he thought it, it was just the red jungle fowl was their ancestor, but actually it's a mix of different jungle fowls, red jungle fowl, green jungle fowl, I think the Sri Lankan jungle fowl, all kinds of jungle fowl. But Darwin was quite obsessed with the chicken, and then Ulysses Aldrovandi was also kind of the godfather of natural history, 
obsessed with the chicken. Um, this bird, I don't know what it is that it does. Alice Walker, who's a kind of black feminist novelist, uh, writes, uh, she's actually got a memoir about living with chickens. Um, just, she just became fascinated with chickens in her kind of later life. So is this, life. Is this what you mean so by the, are, the magic of, of the chicken? People are just, yeah, they're just right. obsessed. I think once you connect with a chicken, you just become a chicken person um, <laughs> and you can't not be one because you just see these these like little dinosaurs almost. These They've existed for so long and they've so shaped the world. Um, so, so I think this really quite recent paper about the um, chicken coming to Europe that basically said it wasn't for like a century or so. I'm probably misquoting this terribly, but it wasn't for quite a while that we that chicken when chickens came into Europe that we started eating them. Um, they were very much like companions. They were used uh, for cultural ceremonies, folklore, medicine, um, and and these they were kind of collector's items, as were their eggs. Um, so eggs. People, if people who don't know eggs probably just think an egg is that, you know, kind of brownie, orange thing you get in the supermarket. That's just not true at all. Eggs come in kind of every size, every colour. Um, the colour of an egg actually matches behind a chicken's ear. So you can tell what colour uh, a chicken's egg is um, from looking behind their ear. So... Yeah, and, and yeah, the chicken has just had this place and we can hear it in our language. And there's examples of this in almost in many languages. What uh, mother hen, cock of the walk. It's it's kind of embedded in our life in the way that we don't really notice until you notice. Um, but yeah, the egg has cultural significance as well as this kind of symbol of renewal and rebirth and uh, kind of obviously around Easter, but other ceremonies have this kind of ovoid, this shape without beginning or end. It's really important to how we imagine cultural ceremonies, and it has been for, you know, centuries. So if we think of the chicken as just this problem that needs to be fixed, we're missing a lot of fascinating, interesting and really important parts of our history um, with these kind of, they are weird little birds. There's no denying that they're weird little birds, but they are kind of really incredible how they've evolved with us and, uh, yeah, the, the kind of change in places in society and how they just capture people. Um, yeah, more people than you'd think are obsessed with chickens. <laughs> oh, it was, it's wonderful to, to hear you talking about them. I mean, uh, the thing that pops into my head in terms of you know, what, what could be used as a mean to reconnect us with this magic that once upon a time uh, there was in the relationship between um, or the perception of humans to chickens. I mean, I, I, I think of um, Harry Potter and phoenixes, actually. Mm. Um, you know, the phoenix is now um, a, a bird which uh, we can perhaps in many ways thrust back into our culture through the Harry Potter books. It, it's a, a bird that we know is magical. And, and we imagine as magical in, in, in the modern sense of uh, sci-fi and, and, and magic and witchcraft, etc. But here we have them. We have these birds. I mean, yes, they don't go up in flames and then rebirth out of that. But there is that sense to them. And, and, and that was very evocatively explained to us from, from what you were saying there. It's amazing, yes. So, and, and I don't know, I suppose the, the, the other thing that comes to my mind here is that reconnecting with this magic and in particular with their symbology as um, that of rebirth mm. that feels so significant in fact 
uh, as as a because I, I've maybe not said on this podcast, but I've said elsewhere before that I, I think of you know what we're going through as a species as a kind of spiritual death mm-hmm. that that calls for some you know something else to come out of it, which is either total death and annihilation or hopefully some kind of um, not superstitious uh, rebirth. Well, we need symbols of that. We need to reconnect with those symbols in order for that to happen. Yes, uh, you're, you're converting me to chickens. <laughs> yeah. uh, alas, I have a dog, so I don't think that would work. But, uh, yeah, maybe yeah. they could get on. And I, th- I think that because the chicken has been, as we said right at the beginning, this symbol of the Anthropocene, mm. it also allows us to look at magic being everyday and mm. ordinary, and perhaps the answers are already there. We just need to really actually think about them differently, approach them from a different way. So we don't need the phoenix because we've yes. got the chicken. So what do you need a phoenix for? Wonderful. Okay, so that leads on, I think, probably to our last uh, set of discussions, really, which is about methods, right? So how can we excavate this magic, right? Um, it's not the, the primary question that I, I'm sure has motivated this, but uh, you talked about, uh, in some of your work, the use of um, new methods like storytelling. You say it's a, a burgeoning method in more than human scholarship or uh, even talk about post-human storytelling. So that raises really interesting ideas uh, in my head. Um, but, I mean, how do non-humans, who obviously don't talk mm-hmm. to us, how do they participate in narrating these new stories? Well, it's interesting that you say non-humans don't talk to us because I think non-humans do talk to us. And you have a dog mm. and I'm sure you can understand what your dog is saying. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yes, of course I do. Yes. So it's it's not about Better how... Better than my children. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not necessarily about whether animals can talk. It's about learning um, their language and their language might not be verbal, it might be behavioural, it might be contextual, it might be, well, almost certainly as in our relationships with them. And so I think the more than human geographies, the kind of non-human geographies, where the real strengths are, that aren't just strengths for um, that kind of sector, these are strengths for every kind of research, is the possibility to develop new methodologies, whether that's storytelling, whether that's rethinking our subjects, that's rethinking our ethics, whether that's there's loads of work in like videography, photography, recording, it, that actually by, by virtue of it not having as much ethical, institutional ethical uh, oversight, you can experiment much more. Uh, and so I have written a little bit about this. So, so there is an oversight, you know, unless you're experimenting on a chicken in a lab, there's no oversight, ethic, uh, ethical kind of institutional ethics oversight of social research with animals. It doesn't really count, um, which is allowed for experimentation. Potentially, it's going to allow for exploitation as well. Almost certainly it will. Um, but it has allowed for new methods to be tried out um, and for allowed us to rethink actually the things that are already happening. So we can talk to animals um, or we can listen to them, that we can certainly listen to them. Let's just turn briefly to your Balkan Bay project. Are you drawing on these methods in this project? Tell us about it. Absolutely. So this is a new project and this is what I've been thinking about the last few months. Um, So when I moved here, I came to Morecambe. The first place I went was Morecambe, not Lancaster. And that's where I live now. And I was totally fascinated by the whole landscape, by the presence of birds, both actual and kind of artistic in Morecambe and all around kind of Morecambe Bay. Bird life is Uh, ecologically important here, but it's also really important to the culture and society of the Bay and the economics of the Bay in some sense. Um, 
so what I'm doing at the moment is develop well developing new methods around bird watching and photography, kind of participatory photography, uh, to explore that cultural uh, relationship, to explore the heritage of Morecambe Bay's birds, uh, to explore the identity, the avian identity of Morecambe Bay. But importantly, it's not just from the human perspective, it's also from the avianist perspective. So what does uh, conservation mean for birds in the area? What do things like Eden Morecambe mean for birds in the area? Uh, and how are people living with birds who are um, affected by climate change, basically? So we're seeing fewer and fewer birds. The habitat is kind of being lost. Uh, migration routes are being affected by warming climates. So we're seeing fewer birds get back. And the kind of connection to my other work is avian influenza. We are seeing, um, obviously, avian influenza decimating our bird populations. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of trying to explore. And it's very early days. So if anyone listening is interested in Morecambe Bay's birds, I'm going to do a little plug and that's say so they can get in touch to yes, talk please to do. me. Great. Yes. Um, it, I mean, what it sounds to me almost is that we're talking here about using these methods to expand the sensitization of the human being, the sensorium as it's sometimes mm -hmm. talked about. It's not ex nihilo, right? It's, it's a, a development or an expansion uh, of sensitivities which are already there within us, but yeah. which have been occluded or d deliberately uh, negated so that we, we sense the, the living world around us. Again, we can hear it speak to us better. Absolutely. And I think it isn't just about thinking about the new. It's sort of about thinking about the old, about those yeah. things that are still. So I think Rob McFarlane talks about like the old ways. It's about thinking about the relationships we've had with nature and not romanticising. It's certainly not about romanticising the past. It's about actually thinking about how do we reconnect with the world around us because people are doing it. And I think, again, everything's kind of in the wake of the pandemic now. But during the pandemic, we saw garden bird watching shoot up uh, we, like we saw chicken keeping shoot up. People want to be able to slow down and connect with nature and they want to have relationships with the non-human world. It's just that that's made very difficult by the wider socio-economic conditions of, of the world, you know? So, yeah, hopefully it's about reconnecting and thinking about how people, yeah, l learning from people, how they are still maintaining those relationships with birds and with places, uh, not just the place they're in, but places everywhere um, through these migratory seabirds. Final question and, and then we'll wrap up. And This is probably quite a, a tough question, but, you know, this podcast is about for um, developing a science for the Anthropocene. And we've talked a lot of, uh, about the substance of what that might be and the, the methods and uh, the shift in orientation that's involved. If you were queen of the world for a day <laughs> and you could suggest one major change or make one major change to human, non-human relational research, as I'll call it, rather you know, rather than just geography, what, what would it be? What would be the most important change to research practice for this science for the Anthropocene? It would be to change the imperative to not, not do anything with research, so for research to be observational, I suppose, um, and to ask for research to do something, um, so to be, which I guess is, is part of a wider push across the social sciences from many angles, but for, for it to be yeah, have have some sort of goal <laughs> almost for it not to be just to notice. We've noticed. We, we know, right? We don't need to notice the world anymore. We need to do something about it. It's not enough to point out the problems. We need solutions. And I think that's something we're reluctant to do as academics is to say, actually, here's a solution. 
we want to point out the problem. We're trained to point out the problems. We're trained to critique. But we've got enough critique, right? We need to retrain ourselves. We need to come up with solutions and we need to test them before it really is too late. Fantastic. So, Katie, final question, standard again. If we are proverbially going over the cliff um, and urgently need a new science for the Anthropocene, will we learn to fly? Very on the nose, I would say. <laughs> and I guess with, with my, you know, chickens can't fly. So maybe it's not that we need to learn to fly, but we need to come back down to Earth uh, and, and go from there. Wonderful. Casey Oliver, thank you so much for joining us uh, for a wonderful discussion. Uh, and thank you also for listening. Please join us next time for a, we hope, celebratory 10th uh, episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you.